So you're a fan of Atlanta United. And you heard ATL on Fire has crazy insights to your favorite team. Or maybe you're just here for the crazy. Amar said it? You've got to be kidding me. Nah, I'm here to produce, keep the sanity, and of course, drink wine. Or maybe to hit the buttons. And crank up the crazy. Whatever you're here for, we're going to talk about it all. I'm Dave Cass. I'm Mikey Dobbs. And I'm Carmen Butler. And this is the ATL on Fire Podcast Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of ATL on Fire, the podcast where we talk all things Atlanta United Football Club, and I am joined by Dave Katz, Carmen Butler, but also um, we are in a special place and um, I've been invited by Brandon Bogner and his family to Wolf Mountain Vineyard and are joined by Brandon Bogner, uh, a good friend of mine and a listener of the show and really appreciate you uh, having us here at the vineyard. What a beautiful setup this yeah, is. thanks for having us. Awesome. My pleasure. Thank you guys beautiful for coming out. And, out and look at this beautiful setting that we are sitting in here. Yeah. <laughs> he was even nice enough to have a fire Fire's setting going. in the background right. for the listeners here. Just, just another day at the office for me. Feels <laughs> just like home. So, yeah, um, you know, Wolf, Wolf Mountain has been around since 99. Yeah, we uh, bought the land in 99. Uh, nothing was here. So this was just a pine thicket. So the first... Year was just clearing, grading, and getting the soil ready. Planted the vines in 2000 and started construction of the winery. And the rest, as they say, is history. So, can you tell the listeners, like, what part of Georgia are we in here? Delonica? Sure. We're just north of the uh, town of Delonica, about five miles north uh, on your way towards Suches. So, viticulturally, uh, we had an AVA uh, bestowed upon us by the federal government about four years ago. So, and can um, you tell the listeners what an AVA is? Yeah, it's the American Viticultural Area. So the federal government deems this area uh, unique to growing vinifera wine grapes. When people think of Georgia and wine, they usually don't think of Cabernet Sauvignon. They usually think of Muscadine and Scuppernon and native grapes. So uh, this kind of really put us on the map for fine wine production in the state of Georgia. So our AVA is the Dahlonega Plateau, which is kind of geologically, and a lot of the, as my dad always tells the story, uh, as he was on a, a plane taking off from Atlanta, uh, <laughs> They use this as a, as a gauge as uh-huh. they're coming out of Atlanta, uh, and they actually call this the Delonica Plateau. So yeah. we actually heard that on a flight. We said, ah, oh, that's kind of nice. Let's, uh, let's try to put that as an AVA. So well, <laughs> Very I mean, nice. we got it. The view <laughs> is absolutely stellar. Um, so for the listeners that have not made it up here, uh, throughout wherever you are in Georgia or the, the surrounding states, what a great getaway to get to, to this area and enjoy some some wine tasting, which we're going to do. And as our listeners know, Brandon, uh, we, we always kick off each of the shows. Dave is nice enough to bring Carmen and I a bottle of wine <laughs> sure. and, and yeah, share kind nice. of a new label with us. Yes. Um, and so you've got three beautiful uh, we're, we're uh, here to do that today. La- labels So tell here. us, just yeah. before you start talking about sure. your wine, tell us when you guys got here, how big was the wine region? How, what, you know, how many wineries was, were here? How was, many are there now? There was nothing. We were the second... We were the second vineyard planted and the second winery to open okay. uh, in the area. Now there's about 10 or so. Um, so it, the, the industry was, was nothing when we got here. Actually, Lumpkin County was dry oh, when wow. we got here. Oh, so my goodness. We had to uh, uh, not only, you know, do some That makes it harder. Right. <laughs> make some friends. Right. We had to make some quick friends, uh, and we, which we did. Um, but then also, too, the whole farm aspect got us out of a lot of the county issues because, okay. you know, the state of Georgia allowed farmers to serve their products. Right. So, um, just like anything else, we were able to serve under a Farm Winery Act uh, until, but of course, now the county is, is, is not dry anymore. So 
a lot has changed. <laughs> so, progress. Progress. Yeah. T- talk about like those first couple of years. Like how did how did you guys I get mean, the land prepared and like where do you get where do lot. you get vines from? We, Dave and lot. I were talking about this. Yeah. Where, where does that all? Well, come our from? soil. If you're you know native to Georgia, you know we've got plenty of Georgia red clay. Right. Uh, the French and the Italians will call it the terra rossa which is a, just a really beautiful word for red yeah. wine. So, um, so you can grow fine wine grapes, obviously, okay. in this soil type. The issue with our region is the amount of pine. So when you have uh, the amount of pine trees that we had in this, this property was, was filled with them, um, you have high uh, acid, uh, mm-hmm. in your, you know, high pH. So uh, we had to lower that with uh, dolomitic lime. So we had to till in like 30 tons of lime per acre. Oh my goodness. Uh, to neutralize the soil pH and to bring it back into balance. Scrapes like everything kind of just balanced. Um, but the, uh, you know, playing in the first few years with the clone of the grape and the rootstock, which we kind of talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of trial and error involved with finding the perfect fit. Um, and then, you know, uh, just going with that. Obviously here uh, we focus on growing reds. This property is real suited for red production because it's all south-facing. So from sunup to sundown, you get all-day sun on the grapes, which is optimal for ripening reds. So um, did you plant one type of grape to begin with, or was it uh, a we had, handful? We had had kind of a satellite vineyard that we had done some trials in, in terms of some different varieties. We knew we wanted uh, four uh, to do a proprietary blend and possibly in the future some varietals. So we obviously started with the big boy, which is the hardest one to grow uh, on the East Coast, <laughs> and that's Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. And so our cab has, has taken multiple uh, double gold, best of categories, going up against cabs from California at California competition. So I really feel like this site in particular is very special for Cabernet Sauvignon. And why is it so difficult to grow Cabernet here? The ripening. No. So um, you need a length of growing season. But you have to combat that with elevation because of all the insects and critters that we have. There's a few specific that will just wipe your vineyard out. Right. And so you have to be at a certain elevation where you have the colder winters to kill off that insect vector. But the higher you go, the shorter your growing season then becomes. Sure. So in grapes like Cabernet, I mean, even in, in Napa and, and Paso Robles and you know, all these great California regions, uh, Cab is usually the last off. It mm-hmm. hangs the, the longest okay. know, length of the season. So, uh, But here, uh, to put it in perspective, I have bud break in my Cabernet when other growers in the area are having bud break in their Chardonnay. So even though we're at that elevation hmm. that we need for the colder winters, it's still what you would refer to as a hot site. So, like, we have warmer temperatures here. Mm-hmm. So, and, I mean, grapes and vines, like, from what I have, my little knowledge, right, like, people are surprised that, you can grow grapes and, and sure. wine here in Georgia, but they've they've done such a good job with you know the the hybrids of grapes and and sure. t- the tolerance of the grapes over time in these regions has has improved. Sure. What are some of the key things that have happened to, you know over over the last couple of decades to evolve that? Well, a lot of work has been done at uh, you know from the big boys out out west. Uh, yeah. You know, UC uh, UC Davis in particular, um, they will uh, you know do they do a tremendous amount of research in terms of clones and in terms of rootstock and and you know playing with that. That's that's been that's been critical, and also too the farming. Yeah, you know, uh, knowing what you're doing. Uh, I've become a better winemaker in, in 23 years uh, from vintage to vintage, and I've become a better farmer. And, I, you know, the joke is always is really not a joke, but wine is made in the vineyard. So the, the more I work out there and the better the quality of the fruit coming into the winery makes the vintage better. Hmm. 
And so I have to do a lot more here than, say, yeah. some of my vineyard friends in California. Uh, <laughs> uh, just, just as an example, a typical spray program in California, you would spray your vineyard about five to six times throughout the growing season. And I spray my vineyard five to six times a month. So it's, it's intense. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a lot of that is because of humidity. If you're from the south, you know it's humid. And grapevines are susceptible to mold and mildew. So there's a lot of right. uh, fungicides and things that have to be sprayed at critical times. So, so we enjoyed a nice bottle of the thing, Instinct, yes, Instinct uh, at, at lunch. Fantastic. Um, 2017. And one of the things I was you know, kind of surprised about, you know, that's you know, a, a six-year-old mm -hmm. uh, vintage, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, and for us, you know, a small, small vineyard as this is, but even though it's, it's huge in my eyes for, for a Georgia vineyard, <laughs> sure. um, you know, that, that's, that's a pretty good aging yeah. process you guys have. So how do you, how do you think about your, your vintage and, and what is kind of the strategy when it comes to, uh, the, the approach for aging your wines and things of that nature? Well, we, you know, kind of had baby steps, you know, when you're, we did things the right way. A lot of wineries are, uh, you know, popping up and they're putting a few rows of grapes in the yard and they're bringing in grapes from California and they're making wine and they're saying, oh yeah, you know, we're open. Uh, you can't open a winery that fast. So, yeah. you know, we planted the, we established the sites in 99, planted the vineyard in 2000 and we didn't open until 2003. So that was one year in production, two years in aging, and then a release. And we could actually say, you know, this is something that we grew. You know, this right. isn't something we bought or we yeah. brought in or whatever. Yeah. So. Um, and, you know, wine, like any other product, um, you know, you've heard the term, I'm sure, terroir yeah. and a sense of place, right? We wanted to create a sense of place and we wanted people to be able to taste that from the first vintage and then not come back and be like, well, we did release our wine. Be like, well, you know, what changed? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, so anyway, so that sense of place is uh, something that we really focus on. Getting back to the aging uh, component of it, especially for reds in here, just the concentration that you're able to achieve uh, through cellaring from that extra, you know, uh, 36 to 48 months. Industry standard is about 40, you know, it's, it's usually about two years. Um, so to go into that third year and beyond uh, is, is something that financially have to make sense which a lot <laughs> right. of times it doesn't right, yeah, right. Um, i had to fight because it takes three <laughs> years to get a grape too right sure. yep. before so you ever get the first grape the and then grape. if you wait another, another three years you're right. trying a long time exactly so um now I, honestly our first 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 vintage we had a vineyard locally that was planted two years before us okay so we did make the first first it was locally grown yeah. fruit but not on this estate so our first vintage from our vineyard was not till till uh 2004 yeah but I would imagine even so, getting grapes that helped you figure out the process as sure. you, you know, get a, a yeah. head start. Yeah. You know, and then bringing in consultants from California that I trained under. It's one, you can go to school, you can learn all this great stuff, but still, you know, until the time that you're in your cellar, you know, making your wine with your grapes and your style and your techniques and the equipment that you purchase and all of that, there's so many moving parts, obviously, that come into it, and that really sets the, the vision of the winery and sets the quality of the winery. So, I mean, we spared you know, no expense as it relates to equipment. The equipment that we have, you'll see it, you know, any major Napa Valley winery, um, mm -hmm. you know, from Europress is our, you know, our, our uh, you know, completely computerized automated pressing uh, system and uh, stainless steel tanks. We have, we're one of the only wineries that has a monoblock, you know, in all enclosed bottling line. So uh -huh. we, we wanted things to be done professionally to create a professional product. And so how many bottles do you produce a year? We do uh, roughly around 7,000 cases. Okay. So. And when you were deciding to plant, um, what, what other varieties of grapes are you growing and how did you decide? 
Well, I mean, a lot of, like I said, was trial and error. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon was going to be the biggest challenge. We knew that. So we picked the worst spot to grow Cabernet. <laughs> uh, I also, I'll take that back. The best spot, the worst soil. Yeah. Um, so a lot of grower, growers around here made the mistake of buying pasture land and planting grapes. Okay, yeah. So the organic composition of the soil is so incredibly high. Yeah. And there's nothing you, you can't take nutrients out of the soil. Right. You can put them in, but <laughs> yeah. you can't take them out. So by clearing this mountaintop that was heavily timbered, you know, the soil was garbage. Yeah. Uh, actually, the first year, about 25% of the vines died. Okay. So, um, which we, you know, we obviously. So you were probably feeling bad at that moment, yeah, but maybe so now the the flip side now, is yeah. yes. Now the 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 vines that are you know on full board about year ten is where you hit your first big time maturity in terms of quality, and yeah. it just just like we all do get better with age, right? So yes. you just get better and better and better. Amen. And uh, you know. So for those of are not out on the listeners who are not really familiar with it, right? You you kind of want the grapes to struggle, struggle, right? Because then it concentrates the fruit, right? Sure. Well, and it just make it. It's all about character. And yeah. so when you asked me about the grapes that we planted, a lot of those grapes were specifically chosen because we knew we wanted to to make a proprietary blend. And so if you're starting out saying, okay, we want to make this wine. Well, what do we want in this wine? Well, we want color, and we want tannin, and we want fruit, and we want this, and we want that. Then you start looking at grapes that can provide that, Uh, and obviously grapes that you can grow in your microclimate. So we we needed thicker-skinned grapes that can ripen quickly because of our humidity and rainfall. And Dave and I were talking about this at lunch. He was was educating me, like a lot of European – are typically blends like a sure. Bordeaux and yeah. like it's really California kind of created like they did. Here's the Cabernet <laughs> classic. Right. And, and when in reality, right, like a blended red wine is really quite delicious, right? Cause oh, sure. you, you have more to, to tinker with there to get, get the, sure. get what you're yeah, looking for. If you're for. out there, dear podcast listeners, don't be afraid of the blends. Don't be afraid of the blends. <laughs> yeah. And don't be afraid to turn the bottle around oh, yeah. and read the back. And what do you have? A yeah. lot of useful information. Wow, let's, don't just look at the pretty front of the bottle. It's what? not just the pretty front. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting stuff. And like when I visit wineries and I've been all over, obviously uh, to different wine growing regions, um, you know, yes, there's Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir, yeah, whatever. But when I get and I'm, and I'm visiting and, and being in the industry, we're usually given the experience, you know, where we yeah. get to meet the winemaker and get behind the scenes and ask questions and, and dive deeper into the portfolio of wines. And I'm always curious into the blends because that is that winemaker, that's, you know, he or she's expression of what they feel like is their best you know because you usually focus on that in terms of those blends and so if you like our claret or or you like our instinct or one of our other blends it's unique to wolf mountain vineyards and you know it's the only place you can get it so and you make the initial (laughs) wine from the individual grapes and then blend yeah so the first year can you tell us a little bit all right so we go first year varietal right hard part of my job is i have to taste all those barrels (laughs) usually on average have around 250 to 300 barrels so i usually don't plan anything else that that day (laughs) Um, we're professional you know we we obviously will discard um (laughs) mikey dobbs and i have been known to have 250 in a day as well so (laughs) And not discarded. Carmen's a little more discerning, <laughs> but you know, I've so. I've gotten a little little loose at the end of some of these podcasts. So. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, you know, so as as we're going through the season, I pretty much know at the end of harvest, at the end of crush, you know, who I feel like my strong, you know, my strong guys from that vintage are going to be yeah. uh, the strong grapes, and then you know I can kind of know what I want to base my blends around. But it's not until that first year of aging, because not only now are we talking about grape variety, but now we're talking about uh, barrel selection. Yeah. 
So I use, you know, French, I use American, I use Hungarian. All of these different oaks offer different flavors, and then there's different toast levels, and there's different forests in France, in Hungary, in America, uh, that these, you know, these, these uh, oaks are timbered, and they offer different flavors. So now you're, different, you're offering flavor profiles from the grape, now flavor profiles from the barrel, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be until a year later. Right. And then you go through and you taste those. And then we start making the assemblages of, okay, this is going to be the component. Now, I've been doing this long enough, obviously, that we know what our strong guys are for the right. most part. So each grape, typically each wine has a grape that's the supposed to be the star. star. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then everybody else kind of comes in in supporting roles. You know, we're going to add a little more mid-palate volume. We're going to add a little bit more color. We need more fruit. We need more tannin. We need this. We need that. And so that's where it, where it all goes. And then that's the fun part. Yeah. And that's really the artistry. So we'll sit down. I'll make Instinct in particular because it's, you know, this five, five grapes, typically sometimes four, depending on the vintage. Um, there's so many different variables. So, you know, I'll make 10 different blends of instinct yeah and then you know we'll all sit down blindly just like our wines are judged at international competition and say you know e that's the best yeah Ooh, okay that was, that was uh-huh. this 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 and this and so then that becomes the blend. well i say we get down to, te- yeah. to testing right yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. part right and, and take yeah take us through the process right for somebody who might be new to drinking wine like what are some of the basics of yeah what, people what, have this vision of you know i love lucy and stomping on the right. grapes in the tub but you know it's yeah. yeah, you don't stomp on. How your do you make it, you know, yeah. less intimidating? Right, drinking wine's fun, right? I mean, so. it needs to be fun, and, and people get intimidated by uh, the grapes because of the com- you know the, the difference, especially when you get into blends. To your point, yeah. they're a little bit more intimidating because you're not you know people say, oh, I like Pinot Grigio. Well, yeah. we can't grow Pinot Grigio here, but I make a, a blend of Chardonnay and a grape called Viognier, which mm. is all steel fermented and it's got crisp acidity and it's very Pinot Grigio like. So if you like that style, you'll, you'll like plenitude. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of times you just kind of got to get away from the, all the misconceptions of wine yeah. and just say, you know, listen, you have a nose. <laughs> you can taste <laughs> for the most part. Uh, most people can. Um, and so, you know, it's up to you, you know, for, to, to explore the wines. You know, the first thing you do is explore the bouquet of the wine. You know, you smell the wine. Does it, do, you, do you pick up any kind of notes? Um, what you have in your glass here is um, we're just going to make it easy. This is our... Burgundian style Chardonnay, so this is the classique. Um, so this is really an oak-driven white wine. So um, you do get some stone fruits and some other uh, uh, different layers of of of, uh, of you know, apple and other types of, of fruit flavors. Yeah. But the aromatics is driven from the oak, so it's very yeah. very perfumey, vanilla. Picking up all that, absolutely. Yeah. So um, yeah. when you when you know. Again, for the, the non-professional wine drinker or professional winemaker, you think, oh, they have notes of apple and this and whatever. It doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that you're adding apple to no. your wines, right? Where is no. that coming from? Very interesting. Um, all right, so you have a, a certain profile. And the reason why um, Chardonnay is planted all over the world is because um, it's very, a very flavorful grape that can be, show many different expressions. So the first big decision I make as a winemaker going into fermentation is the yeast selection. So I, us- I literally have a portfolio. We usually start the, f- the fermentations off with what we call the wild fermentation. So the native yeast begin. Now, native yeast will not ferment to 14.5% alcohol, which is what the Chardonnay is. Um, so then we will bring in an engineered yeast, um, which is typically an isolate from a vineyard somewhere in France or uh, South Africa or California. And that yeast is known, as it relates to Chardonnay, to express certain types of flavors. So you can get 
tree fruits, you can get stone fruits, you can get citrus components. Um, and so certain yeasts will do better jobs than others in kind of bringing those flavors out. And then the medium that you age it in. So typically when we're talking about steel and a stainless steel tank, there is no flavor, obviously, from a stainless steel tank. So everything then is derived from the fruit, from the terroir, from the vineyard, from the yeast selection, all of that. But then as soon as you bring in oak, like this, uh, which was aged in uh, Terenceau French oak barrels. These barrels are $1,800 a piece uh, for the oak barrel. Uh, wow. They're revered as very, very high quality. Uh, they're a three to four year where the wood is air dried that long before they even begin the toasting process and the, and the actual uh, uh, building of the barrel. So there's all these different things that kind of come into play. And do you go through secondary fermentation? Yes, this goes through a full malolactic. So okay. for those of you who don't know, typically... Um, Acids, as it relates to wine, you have citric, you have malic, you have lactic. Um, citric and malic are usually the highest coming in from the vineyard. So by introduction of a bacteria, uh, after primary fermentation, we go through a secondary fermentation where the bacteria then consumes the malic acid and transfers it into lactic acid, which is in dairy products and cheeses. Mm. So that's why this is a creamy, uh, softer finishing wine than say our plenitude or one of our other wines that's done in steel so you can prohibit that from happening and for this wine we encourage it so it actually goes through a mill in the barrel and uh, we also do a process called surly aging um, so we actually barrel ferment this chardonnay so this chardonnay will go into barrel and actually ferment in the barrel cask versus in one of the stainless steel vats hmm. and then once the fermentation arrests those yeasts settle out but those yeasts are very very flavorful remember i mentioned the flavor component right so we have a little tool that stirs we do it by hand about two three times uh, a month we'll we'll stir the lees and bring those yeasts back up and that just adds more texture so that's where it gives us this white wine a lot of volume on the palate awesome. well it's so. delicious first off <laughs> really? yeah. get to that. it's yeah. very very good yeah, yeah. And I agree. And we're drinking it in this lovely tasting room up here at Wolf it, Mountain. It's yeah. gorgeous. I wish I could ha be able to show yeah, the, the view. The view it is, is but amazing. you do get a sense of the tasting room here on the yeah. on the YouTube, which is great. And it tastes to me a little bit more like a French style than a California style. Is that sure? Yeah, Bur well, Burgundian style is that Burgundy, yeah. you know, and that's uh, that's where it really was trademarked um, with these. Uh, oak-aged Chardonnays. Now, America kind of had a folly back in the 70s and 80s where they just over-oaked Chardonnay and turned off kind of our uh, wine uh, consumer to these oak-aged wines because they used a lot of American oak. American oak is a looser grain wood than French, and so the wine goes deeper in the barrel and pulls out more Right, more oak, flavor. Just yeah. like with bourbons, yeah. and, you know, and all that. So, um, although the American oak barrels for wine are much different than bourbon barrels, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's such a better, in my opinion, and, and for my uh, style of winemaking, uh, the French um, and even some Hungarian uh, is much more suited for whites. It's just delicate, doesn't overpower, yeah, I mean, still tastes I like fruit. it very much. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's, this is, this is my good. That's how I so. lean in the Bonnier. <laughs> really, is, really is, good. Uh, you know, it's also terrific. Yeah. Sure. I'm glad you guys enjoy it. Yeah. Definitely. So, we'll get into some reds here in just yeah. a bit. Um, what other questions do you have, Dave? You're the, the wine geek of the group. <laughs> so, we love wine geeks. <laughs> are all of your um, vines right here in this location, or is it in the whole region? And, and how many vines do you have planted? We have about, uh, about 10,000 vines planted here. So it's roughly about 1,000 vines per acre is, is typically. Um, so we're at a six-by-six six spacing. 
So that's um, a lot more than we can just see. Correct. correct. Yeah, the, property, <laughs> the property wraps around and kind yeah. of dog legs around. Okay. Uh, the, and the whole property is, is south-southwest facing. So we're, okay. we're due south here and then southwest as we turn the corner here. Um, so we've, uh, you know, we've kind of planted as, as all we can. Uh, what we loved about this site was the terrain, but it's also very hard to farm. So I have a very small little Italian tractor that I have to drive <laughs> down every single row. And it's extreme farming in some instances where you're up on two wheels, but it has four-wheel independent <laughs> yeah. suspension. You so probably got pretty good axle. at that by now. I have, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so we have some very steep vineyards. Don't want to roll terrace. your tractor. You don't want to roll your tractor. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not a pretty sight. Um, so, yeah, we've kind of planted everything that we have here. So we partner with other local growers uh, in the area that uh, are more suited and conducive to growing white varieties where we just focus on reds on our estate, and then we purchase the whites, you know, from local growers. So, yeah. so this is now referred to as the Delonica Plateau. The Delonica Plateau. And that's relatively new in terms of kind of being an official region yes. of recognized wineries here in the, in, in the Delonica area. Yes, it is. Awesome. That's amazing. So, um, so one of the things that Carmen and I always struggle with on, on our podcast <laughs> is like describing a, a wine, even though you love it, right? Like right. To, that we talked about, oh, it's got apple or it's crisp mm-hmm. or it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's oaky. Like what are like some of the basic things, like if you're trying to describe a wine that someone like, like myself is a novice should be thinking about in terms of like, hey, if I wanted to explain, I like this wine, it had X, Y, and Z because... Right. I don't know. It just doesn't roll off my tongue like it does sure. for a lot of people. Yeah, sure. same. Well, I mean, the is your the way your tongue is kind of set up as your receptors. Um, so all of your acid receptors are in the front. Yeah. So really, the first thing you're going to sense is the wine's acidity, whether it's which where it should be. You know, yeah. is the intent for it to be a champagne, right? Which is you know very usually higher acid. Um, or a steel-aged white like a Pinot Grigio or a Sauvignon Blanc. Those are heavy acids, so you really feel the weight of that wine on the front of your palate. Um, wines like this and, you know, of course, reds would be a flaw. Uh, you, you know, you don't think – you typically don't think of high acid in yeah. red wines. You know, you want that velvety texture, right? Yeah. And so, um, obviously, all reds are going to go through the same malolactic fermentation that the Chardonnay did. Um, but, you know, really kind of sensing the front palate, and then as you, as you, you know, progress – um, mid palate volume is another really big thing. You know, what's the weight on the wine? Yeah. A lot of times you also uh, mistake acid for tannin. So if a wine is very, very tannic, sometimes you'll feel it on the front of the palate. But typically the tannins, uh, if they're well integrated, usually get that on these younger wines. You know, yeah. let's face it, the wine market is what it is. A lot of people rush stuff to, to bottle and, you know, you're, yeah. you're buying stuff off the shelf that's, you know, 12 months out right. um, a lot of, in a lot of instances. Um, so by us going to that 36 and 48 month aging process, um, now you're going to feel that tannin structure on the finish. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, it's it's bouquet you know what do you like about the smell of the wine uh how does the initial taste right what is the mid palate and and that's where you're going to get kind of your your fruit flavors your berry flavors all that kind of stuff and then the biggest thing for me is that length of finish you know some wines are like that you know and it's just like the wine's gone um other wines just linger Hmm. you know and that's uh, that's a testament to the quality of the wine that's made uh and and the integration of the tannins because you have to understand you have uh, seed tannin uh, from the right. from the seeds inside the barrel, you have skin tannin from the skins of the grape, right? Yeah. Those are all extracted during the fermentation, and we'll be able to go back maybe a little later and taste some of the the, the new vintage that's right. still in tank, uh, and you'll be able to taste those you know those those baby wines that were just literally finished fermenting a month ago, yeah. and and the, they're just 
I mean, the flavors just explode, right? Yeah. And so now you're going to make a, I'm going to make a barrel selection. You know, how do, where do I want this wine to go in terms of the direction? Uh, typically, we use a lot of American oak for our reds, and but I have different ones that I like and all that, and we'll get into all that. But um, so then, yeah, you'll make the selection, get it into barrel, and and a lot of times that integration of tannin happens there, and that's what affects the wine awesome. uh, on the finish. So, so maybe we pivot and yeah. and. Go red with that little Atlanta United <laughs> red. I love pivoting. And, and sure. talk a little soccer here. So, yeah. so Brandon, you're a huge Atlanta United Wait, fan. Before we move oh, on yeah. to soccer, though, I just want to tell with all of our listeners in Atlanta, how do they most easily get Wolf Wines? They come to the winery. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Or they can visit one of our uh, uh businesses that we uh, uh, you know partner with like mm-hmm. uh, wild heaven um, yeah. they have uh, opened up uh, a wine list in their tap rooms which they're having a lot of success with um, so we kind of hand pick you know uh, other folks in the business that we like to partner with those are our those other friends so we like friends. the fact that yeah. you're friends yes. with them we're friends with them <laughs> yeah. so we, we have been sharing the news that yeah you can get some of these wines i think Sure. Uh, and if not all of the ones we're tasting today at uh, Wild Heaven, yes. both their locations. Uh, that's fantastic. West End and in Avondale Estates where I live. And, uh, yeah, that's great, too, because I think, it, you know, wines, obviously, the ladies love love to drink wine. And oh, that's yes. a nice. So do the men. So do the men. <laughs> so do the men. Uh, at certain times of the year, because the industry joke is it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. So <laughs> when we're making uh, wine, no, we no, tend no, to. No, no, no. And my good friend Nick was able to bring us up some uh, some sampler packs. Yeah, we love Nick too. Uh, so. all, all of the different uh, beers and that that helped get the boys. But through I love the eight fact, hour, ten hour days. I love the <laughs> fact that uh, you know our podcast listeners sometimes they might be desperate for a wolf wine sure. and they just go get it now. We can, we can, we can di- or we can direct <laughs> ship. So, but they <laughs> should make it up here. You got to make, make it up. So it's worth it, people. Yes, <laughs> it really, really. It's is. stunning the, the the view here. I'm looking around, and we can see the entire Georgia mountains from. It's really a 360 degree view of, from this uh, tasting room. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. So. Uh, Brandon and I actually, we've known each other most of our lives. We, we grew up playing soccer together, um, played high school soccer together. Um, both of us played college soccer. Carmen and Dave plus both played, uh, you know, I think we all played Division One soccer, if I'm not mistaken. So, you know, we love talking soccer. Love it. Uh, we're all Atlanta United fans. And, you know, this year was kind of some downs and ups and downs. Um, what, what, what was your assessment of Atlanta United as a, as a fan? I mean, just very inconsistent, you know, and that's – I know that's what any sports team, especially when you get to the pro – really at any level, consistency is probably the hardest thing to, to come up to come about. I mean, there were, there were moments where they just looked fantastic and moments where they just, you know, yeah. fell – most bad. of those fantastic moments were at home, though. They're, yes, they were. Their yep. away record wasn't yeah, so great. Yeah, it wasn't so great. So, <laughs> and, and that's tough. But, um, but yeah, you know, that's... And tell us a little bit about your history with the club, right? You were there from the beginning, kind of, yeah? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we were original, uh, you know, Atlanta United supporters um, and enjoyed going to the games. It's hard for us up here in Dahlonega, so, you know, it's an hour and a half for mm-hmm. me to the stadium. So, um, you know, it's a little bit of a commitment. Hotel just rooms get Uncle such. Arthur to pick you up in his <laughs> helicopter. Fly me down yeah. anytime, Arthur. If you're I'm, listening, yeah. Uncle Arthur, you know, you can come here. You yeah. can get a nice glass right. of wine, right. and you guys oh. can fly back yeah. down together for the game. Well, we'll have to have you down, yeah. and you're always welcome to stay at our place. Oh. we got a we got a for room sure. for you and Ashley to, Love it. to hang in. Um, Love it. We'll do it more but often. Yeah, yeah sure. we got to do that more often. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is so crazy, you know, that – 
I'm here talking about professional soccer in Atlanta, right? Crazy. Like I never thought, yeah. Yeah, I never thought that we'd ever have a team uh, of any sort of relevance here here in Atlanta <laughs> mm-hmm. that we get to talk about. So as, as, as bitter as I am that I started a podcast, it's been a little bit of a bumpy road since we have after we won in 2018. It's so much fun to talk about soccer. Sure. Um, Things change, though, Mikey Dobbs. If you had told me that I'd be drinking t- absolutely first-rate, terrific wine in North in Georgia, I would have said no way too. Yeah, exactly. So you know, things yeah, change. This is true. Yeah, it's a part of the it's part of the process of just doing something new. And sure. uh, yeah, these experiences are amazing. And um, yeah, I think with a, a lot of the turnover that we're seeing right now, right? All we know is we've seen players exit, right? From sure. you know people that I don't think we're too sad to miss. Like Miguel Berry or uh, you know, Bring Sage, Barry Sage. back. Uh, <laughs> um, now Carmen's it, just trolling. It's people. really hard. I might be drunk. It's really hard. <laughs> it might be the wine talking. <laughs> we were talking about this on one of our previous podcasts. Like more than any other sport, I mean, there's a lot of turnover sure. that's happened here in the MLS, and it's kind of hard when you have this like whole new influx of talent. It's like a whole new team. We don't even know if the backbone of the team, Tiago Almada, is going to be there mm-hmm. uh, come February. Who knows, yeah. So It's not looking good. It's not looking good. I don't know if you've been following, but yeah. he's gone and given a couple of interviews where he has said, I would like to be in Europe now. He's like, I want to be in Europe <laughs> right now. He's yeah. like, I, I need to be playing for sure. one of the best leagues in the world. I, I want to play for Argentina. Scaloni sure. wants me, obviously, to be playing with the, a club and yeah. you know, the best possible coaching staff that can accelerate me while I'm 22 years old, you know? Yeah. So I'm a little worried, though, if, okay, Atlanta's hanging around the hoop waiting for this, you know, whatever 22 million euro price tag that they've got in their head sure. versus doing what's right for the player – um, who I'd be a little worried if he's a little unhappy that they didn't wheel and deal to mm-hmm. find him a good home right now, that he's not going to be like a happy, motivated right. player come February regardless if, if he's Atlanta United. I can't see that being the case. I mean, I think he's, you know, he seems like he's a professional. He's going to he's gonna put in a shift. Sure. But, you know, no one plays their best soccer, and I think you can even see that with Lionel Messi coming from PSG to Inter-Miami for all. He's like a happy soccer player. They, you, you see more of their full potential. Right. So, yeah, um, I don't know, Dave. You, you think he's gone too? Where do you think he's staying? I mean, you know, I don't know. I think right now we're at a, you know, an impasse, right? I think the club really thought he was staying. Yeah. They didn't yeah. think they were going to get the offer that they really wanted. And they were on it. They, they see him as a part of our future. Yeah. Lagerway and and uh, Boca Negra have said for a while that we don't need him to go anywhere. We have plans to build around him and whatever. Um, you know, that might be at odds with what he wants. So yeah, yeah. so you get this this tug of war, player wants to go, club doesn't want to go. You know, it depends on how professional he is, but you don't want a player staying when they don't want to be there. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. And what, one of y'all said, like on social media, Atlanta United posted recently a picture of Almada with Capitan on it, like yeah. trying they, to say, like basically yeah, they, saying. 16 <laughs> yeah. hours ago, they're like our captain, Tiago Almada. Like they're, they're, trying, trying. To force the, they're yeah. trying to force the agenda and the, and the pressure. But I, again, I don't know that that's the right um, optics on it that especially Lagerway should be thinking about in terms of like, look, this is one of Argentina's biggest potential talents. Like yeah. there's mm-hmm. a reason they brought him to the world cup, even as a injured reserve right. and then gave him minutes. Like mm-hmm. that's a lot of trust. That's not just saying, Hey, we want another guy in the roster. That's like, you don't give a guy minutes regardless right. 
if you don't believe that he's got some potential on the Argentinian national team sure. at, you know, at that time, he was 21 years old, I think. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I interpret that exactly the same way, right? During the World Cup, you give him a, a define what he played, like 12 minutes yeah. or something. And he played that well. was to literally say to you, you are our future, <laughs> stick, yes. you know. Yeah, exactly. it's, it's a big vote. But, and I think, you know, it's troubling for him if – he, you know, he's not being pushed to his maximum during right. these. Like these are the critical years mm-hmm. to where you like get to that next. You level up. Yeah, he's already twenty-two. Yeah, you want to play the best yeah. competition. You want the best sure. coach to be pushing you and doing doing everything. So now a guy who's not twenty-two, <coughs> yeah. and, and who might be someone, I would like to get your comments yeah, on time. Brad yeah. Guzan, uh, right, our Guz. goalkeeper. So for those out there listening, Brandon uh, was a goalkeeper. Yeah. You have a son who is a goalkeeper. Correct. So you know a thing or two about playing I between do. the sticks. So give us your thoughts on Brad Guzan. I mean, listen, he's he's served well. Yeah. You know, it's it's at that time of his career, and it's hard for for any athlete to. Say it's time. Yeah, because you you're know, so competitive. You're so competitive. Yeah. And, you know, he, he was it an Achilles. What was the injury? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So Achilles. That is a horrible one to come back from. Mm-hmm. And so I think any athlete wants to say they can do it and they can rehab it and they can come back. And he did it. But I think that that yeah. pretty much says it all. But even so. even before then, he was <laughs> yeah. starting to show signs of slowing down. He was, yeah. And, and there was many times on the podcast we review a lot of tape on, on sure. the podcast. You know, there's just moments like the old Braguzan gets oh, yeah. a palm on that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and mm-hmm. there was at least three or four of those this mm-hmm. year. You're like, the old Braguzan, even right. like two, three years ago, sure. stops that. And sometimes that can be the difference of that back line, the confidence. Like, oh, yeah. As you Momentum know, like, swing when, when you, like, yeah. anybody who's out in the field who's got a good goalkeeper behind them, and I've had the pleasure confidence. of playing. Like, <laughs> yeah, you got to have that big body that yeah. somebody's yelling. Like, sure. You just know they're going to be there. Well, and Yellen's one thing, but yeah. it's, you know the direction is like okay. His decision making has really been yes. one for me. You know, yeah. it's it's when to come, when not to come. Uh, you know, and he, a lot of times he's caught in no man's land, yeah. and it's and it, he, he pays the price. I mean, as yeah. a goalkeeper, you walk a really fine line as to where you should be, and where you need to be, and uh, you know that coupled with your point of you know yeah. you get a little slower. You know, maybe he gets that couple years ago maybe and know, i would say you know guzan's always been there are different types of goalkeepers there's some that are a little bit more comfortable hanging around in the six and there's sure. some that are a little bit more aggressive guzan's always been very athletic and out of his box he's mm-hmm. really cutting out things whatever when when you get to his age and you lose that qu- half uh, that a step quickness. what happens yeah. is you make the same decision and the first couple of times that you don't quite get there mm-hmm. when you, sh- you used to be able start to get there you yeah. start questioning oh, yeah. it whereas yeah. other goalkeepers who maybe Great are point. a little bit more stay at home you know, nothing changes as much. That's a great point. And then, you know, his use of his feet. Yeah. Right. That's always terrific. Been a, always yeah. been a question. You know, always yeah. been a question mark. It's it's you know. So So we, we were I was checking the news on the way up here just to make sure I didn't miss anything that was hot <laughs> off the press. Um, but I did see that there were some rumors of uh, Zach Steffen maybe in conversations with I forget what MLS club it was. But Colorado. Boy, yeah, Colorado. wouldn't that be great if we could get uh, Zach Steffen? What do you think mm-hmm. of that? That'd like I huge. mean That'd be huge. He's uh, he's obviously tried his best. You know, Turner's kind of in a, a bumpy situation over with right. with Forrest right now. But um, 
Yeah, he's he's a real talent. We were talking about he's he maybe need to clear some stuff out in his head. Oh, and I think maybe the yeah. MLS would help him kind sure. of get back to confidence. Maybe he could go on a run of being the best MLS keeper in the league for right. the next four or five years. That might be the best thing for him. Yeah, it's, you know, I, I really thought with those two in particular, and I'm not the verdict's still out on Turner. Yeah. Um, but I really thought you know Zach would go out and he would be a star. Yeah. You know, and so the fact that he's not, you know, he made of, a incredibly short-sighted choice right so yeah. he, he took the big money at man city right. right and he went there with ederson who was literally one world. of the best goalkeepers yeah. in the world yeah. and right. so you could have gone to any major major club and not had to fight with one of the top goalkeepers in the world mm-hmm. for that starting spot i just don't understand yeah. that choice it seemed to me uh, at, even at the time we talked yeah. about it as a crazy choice well, say- we talked about confidence right yeah so goalkeeping is about minutes Yes. I mean, you can right. be the best goalkeeper yeah. in the world, but if you're sitting on a bench right. and you're not playing, there's game minutes. Yeah. And, and that training. showed with him right. in the national yeah. team. Yeah, even totally when so. he was in the national team still, and he was a starting goalkeeper for the U.S. for a little while, but it, when he wasn't getting the minutes at Man City, you could see it in his decision-making. His whole level play mm-hmm. fell off. Mm-hmm. So. Were you actually at the playoff game the first year for Man United, for Atlanta United mm-hmm. where we were taking on the crew and we went oh, yeah. to PKs? Oh, the whole nine. Because yeah. Zach Steffen was yep. in goal he in was, that. That was like, oh, oh my God. I remember that. Yeah. And he was just moment. Asked, yeah. he, what did he say, three, yeah. I think? Yeah. He made it look it was, so simple. It was yeah. ridiculous. I mean, okay. he made it look like the goalkeeper was in control. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was just like, it was, it was insane. Yeah, I was there for that one. And it was, it, that was next level. Yeah. So, and that, it's, like I said, it's. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, he could, like to your point, hopefully he comes back into MLS if that's his decision and he gets those minutes and gets that confidence back and starts to re- kind of build back to where he was. Because let's face it, athletically, I don't think much has changed. I mean, we're not, you know, so he's still the same athlete. Right. It's just about getting the head right yeah. and getting the minutes and getting out there and doing the job. So right. maybe he can do it. And now as, a, as a, obviously a big soccer fan and a very busy guy, right, <laughs> do you follow MLS outside of Atlanta United at all? Are you, like, at all interested? For, you know, Atlanta United went out of the playoffs. Do you, do you know that the final is tomorrow? Yeah, I do. Um, it does kind of lose its luster for me yeah, a little sure. bit. Um, and, then I and, also, and, and do you have a sense of why, what it is that, that you know, might? I, you know, change? I mean, I, I enjoy a lot of the European leagues as well. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you watch – Premier League and you watch Bundesliga, those are the, the, my two that I follow teams and I, I'm into. And, uh, you know, I don't – with MLS, in terms of the play, you know, sometimes yeah. it's like I have to have a dog in the fight yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to really get into it, you know. I mean, I will watch the final and I, I will any, – any time a game comes across, you yeah. know, and I'm available, I'll watch it. Because yeah. there can be some really, really bad MLS games. Oh, you know, it's interesting yeah. because – But there can be in, in even Europe sure, too. But sure. I think Mikey Dobbs yeah. and I would tell you we were sort of the same way. Obviously doing the podcast has changed a little bit, but um, I think – the league is getting better to the point where we enjoy watching other games a little bit more. And there are some players, you know, the obvious being you'd tune in to watch, you know, Messi with Inter Miami. But right. it doesn't even just have to be that, you know. Um, you know, Columbus this year when they beat us, Cucho uh, Hernandez. Did you tune in really to any of the player. Miami games? I'm curious. I did, yeah. See, mm-hmm. see there you go. And that's why the Miami uh, messy deal is a big deal because I like sure. it was like must watch TV there for the league's yeah. cup right like I'm like I'm not missing watching <laughs> right. Messi like I'm gonna, I was like it was like it was it was like must see TV for how, me how are they gonna get around is he gonna play on turf yeah I think yes. so you think he will yeah yes. 
Okay. Yeah, I, he I, has said, you know, that was his whole big thing. And then even before he didn't play in Atlanta, but right before Atlanta, he actually got like, asked on asked Spanish me. TV. Like, Nobody's <laughs> asked me. And he was like, when we were at Barcelona, we trained on turf. I am used okay. to playing turf all the time. Okay. So he's like, I don't see what the big deal is. Right. I was just now, I think, you know, what's interesting of, is yeah. we were speculating that in his contract, the lawyers don't want him playing on turf because sure. they don't want him getting injured. Right. right? So there's, there might be something in his contract, but he as a player, he's like, I don't, I don't see anything. Well, if that's in his contract, he's not playing any games in the MLS. I mean, let's yeah, face it. Right. I, the majority of the... But, uh, but no, there's been no pitches. solid okay. proof that there is anything that's, in his contract. Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, if it is, like, it is kind of the responsibility of the MLS, in my opinion, if that is in his yeah. contract, to let the people who may... Or, if they're artificially increasing the price of that, that is truly almost fraud in my mind. Totally. If, if they're doing that. So it's interesting. Inter Miami doubled the price of their season tickets this year, which is all good when you have Messi. but you know, okay, what happens a year from then now from them um, or two years, whatever it is when Messi leaves. So those people are now, they're not going to suddenly go back right to the lower <laughs> price. Right? No. And no. so they're going to be the highest price ticket in the league. Right. After Messi leaves, when they might not have the team to warrant it, you know, and so then, then what happens? Well, I relate it to wine, so it's you know, your price goes up, it ain't going down. Yeah. So I mean, totally to your point. Yeah, you're not going to lower price of tickets. Yeah. Sounds like a, a fourth DP may be decided in the next week or two. I guess the MLS owners are going to meet. What do you think about raising the salary cap and and the designated player in terms of like again to have us who. We, we only have so much time. We want to watch the highest level of soccer right. outside of our Atlanta United who we, we care about, right? Like I, think, I think you have to if you want to maintain a yeah. level because I look at the MLS right now as creating stars and finishing stars' careers. Yeah. There's not much in the middle. Right. Yeah. You know? And Fair so point. if you want to keep those players and you don't want them to go to Europe, you got to pay them. But I feel like if we can raise the salary cap or the D, like if we get enough George Yakamakis in this league, right. it's inter- it's going to be entertaining. You know, I mean, even like I watched a Turkish league play, uh, maybe it was Manchester United the other day. Yeah, like that's right. They were a good team. Yeah, man. good team. They were a really good team. So I know with the Turkish league is only like seventh or eighth in the world. Like, right. can, can Atlanta United like get into like MLS? Can they get into like that level of play? I, I'm entertained at that point. If if it's if it's at that level of a player, yep. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Agree. Okay, yeah, hundred percent. Shall we try some, the I last see, one? I see some empty glasses. Yeah, All I know. Right. I see. I, I, start, <laughs> I start twitching. You know. Yeah, yeah. Mikey Dobbs doesn't do too well with so empty this, glass. That never happens on our podcast. <laughs> never. Never. This, never, this, ever. this is my baby. So this is something you won't okay. taste anywhere on the East Coast. And this is an absolutely beautiful Cabernet Sauvignon. It's taken multiple best of category double golds in California, going okay. against all the big houses of California. And that is 2016 vintage. 2016. So extra year in bottle from what you tasted in the claret. Okay. So this is a pure. 100% Cabernet. Cabernet. That's new. my thing is a blender. If I'm going to do a varietal, it's going to be 100%. There's no sense yeah. in doing, you know, a lot of people don't realize the, the, the laws in our country in particular. They vary from country to country, obviously. But um, you only have to have 75% of the grape, of one grape, to call it by that grape. So you can have 75% Cab and 25% Merlot and still call it a Cabernet Sauvignon. So, um, and that's what allows people to make their Cabs kind of different from others. But okay. um, this is 100%. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. That is lovely. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, like you said, I feel that more on the back of the mm-hmm. palate, like you were mm-hmm. saying earlier, mm-hmm. just trying to pay attention there. Sure. 
how how do you decide like this is a 2016 if i saw correctly when you go around and decide you're going to do a straight cabernet do you does that change from year to year or you or how much you're going to make based on kind of saying this is a star grape we had a really good season uh, how That's does awesome. that, how does that all determine like doing a straight cab? There are years that I don't. Okay. Your point. So I mean, it, it's all growing season, and how long are we able to let it hang? Um, how much concentration are we getting of flavors? Seed maturity is another big thing. Uh, as you get to not harvest, to get too technical, but what bricks do you get up to here? We can get here. Uh, bricks is the degree we measure the sweetness, which is going to correlate to the alcohol. Um, I will typically harvest my cab between uh, twenty two and twenty five, somewhere in that ballpark. Um, so it does, um, you know, more of a 13% alcohol is where we're typically at on that. California's pushing the envelope. You know, you can get 28 bricks in a California cab pretty easily. But what's so funny is the sugars get high in those California cabs, but the flavors are still green. So uh, a lot of that comes from the seed maturity, which is what I was talking about earlier. But that's where the actual seeds inside the berries start to mature when, when, the, when the grapes are not yet ready the seeds will be green in character or in color. And when you crunch them in your mouth, they're, they're bitter, they're astringent, and you get that kind of vegetal, bell peppery uh, kind of flavor, uh, which you should never taste bell peppers in red wine, by the way. <laughs> Major wine flaw. Um, and so as our cab continues to ripen, even though our sugars are lower, we're able to get them riper um, because we have a lot of things going on with moisture and humidity and other things that kind of play into different roles. But um, the seeds will turn that dark brown woody. And so now when you crunch them in your nut mouth, you're getting those nut flavors, uh, gallnut, almond, walnut, uh, and then just a huge release of tannins. And so that's, you know, what we shoot for. And when I can see that in the vineyard, you know, prior to harvesting, I can pretty much know this year we're going to have a varietal cab or this year maybe it's going to need to be a blender. So. Okay. Uh, not every year. It's terrific. <laughs> this is so cheers. Good. Yes, cheers. Carmen, what do you think of the wine? Delicious. <laughs> this is a Carmen's hey, Carmen. classic. We always ask her. And that's yeah. I always say says. delicious why are complex. Yeah, but are, <laughs> that's it. That's all but you are t- tasting it like deeper in the, the palate, yeah, right? But, but I'm definitely, I'm even drinking it differently from what you said, because mm-hmm. usually I'm just like down the hatch. But no, <laughs> yeah, Keep it in the mouth for a little yeah, bit. Let it hang out. Yeah, let it linger. Let it linger. Yeah, yeah, pick so. up on some different flavors. And yes, that's great. So good. Well, so, I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. Yeah. How... Um, how would you like to see Atlanta United evolve outside of a goalkeeper? I think we agree. We'd love to see like a, we were talking about, if, I know the financials of it are probably impossible with Braguzan still getting paid nearly a million dollars a year sure. to be our starter on contract. Uh, is there any, do you have any hope that like a, if there's a DP that does open up that we would get a designated player and a Zach Steffen type of player? I mean, I think that would be number one on my list. Sure. 100%. Yeah. You know, to have Miles Robinson on need, the back line. We need is, something to build around, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. So, well, you, I think you look at the defense and build that around Miles Robinson yeah. and, and the job that he's able to do. But he's also another guy we'd probably have to put under a DP. So yeah, we've got. Sure. Yeah. I don't think there's a. Is there a DP goalkeeper in the league? I mean, if the only one I could think of would be Blake. But I don't think even Andre Blake is a DP. I don't know. It's got, good, I mean, maybe point. Carmen can Com- check with Comment in the video, yeah. yeah. Well, and here's the other thing that, you know, coming up with my son and watching him come up through the through the leagues and everything up and playing Atlanta United, you know, their their MLS next team and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And where is the development of goalkeepers? Because if you look at these other clubs, 
their youth programs are most ch- most times producing their top goalkeepers, with some exceptions. You have your Blakes and you have your whatever. But a lot of these young players are coming in through uh, FC Charlotte and these other yeah. places, and, and they're developing their goalkeepers, you know, from their youth program. Yeah. And it's like it always – I love to see when those guys take the pitch for Atlanta United, you know, that have come through the program. That, yeah. to me, shows that the process is working. And if you're relying on money and outside well, players, it's – One thing that maybe you could talk about. So from the goalkeeping standpoint, you know, we, we had briefly discussed this earlier, right? So, you know, back when all of us were coming through, you know, there was a coach and then the goalkeeper would be off on the side somewhere and they'd yeah. be like, we'll get – you know, we'll need you later <laughs> yeah. while we're scrimmaging, right? right? right Just right. come, right, whatever. Yeah. And I feel like – to a large extent, that's true at a lot of clubs too. Now, a lot of clubs now for the first time maybe have a goalkeeper coach, but maybe, you know, if you are at one of the MLS academies, then you have a full-time goalkeeper sure. coach, which makes a huge difference. difference. So talk to us a little bit about your experience versus your son's experience in terms of what kind of training he got. and Oh, night and day difference. I mean, you know, not only that, it's the nutrition, and it's the aspect, it's the weightlifting aspect. Not only that he gets through the club, but also uh, just at our high school level. Uh, I mean, when we were coming through playing high school yeah. ball, you know, we had coach that knew nothing. We had, uh, you know, I don't even think we did. We even go in the weight room once. You were there when I, your I coach called timeout, right? Yeah, our, yeah, our coach <laughs> called timeout. I love uh, that. I yeah. cannot think of doing any weight training in high school for ridiculous. Soccer now. My yeah. son has uh, two hours of weight training every day. Yeah, as part of his school curriculum. Yeah. You know, and and the first hour is straight lifting. Then he goes to his academic stuff. And then when they're in season, the soccer team is able to break out and do strength and conditioning, agility, all that kind of stuff. And that's in high school, you know. And, I mean, when you look at what they're able to do at Atlanta United with the facilities they have, and a lot of these kids are homeschooled. They don't even go to school, so they're doing soccer all day long. I mean, you know, look at what their op- the opportunities are. And that's what it takes. You know, we talk about getting American players, and, and I, we talked briefly about my frustration with the NCAA Here, and, yeah. and soccer and seeing all these players come from Europe and taking scholarships from all these American kids that want to play in school. Right. Um, that's how we change that. Yeah. You know, the, the, we've got, as, as a youth program, we have to get better. And I yeah. feel like if we do that, it should feed the MLS. And it's a, it's a win-win not only for yeah. youth sports, but for but, MLS. I mean, I feel like, I, I mean, I see it in my neighborhood with our kids. Like, soccer isn't, I mean, it's as popular as it ever was, but I think it, there's more serious and longevity to what where it can go for them here in the oh, States, sure. whether it's the academy or college. Oh, yeah. uh, there's options, which y- you and I never have. Like, no. We're talking about, like, commitment or, oh, like, yeah. all these I different mean, terminologies. D- D1 was MLS. Know. Yeah. I mean, if you played D1 soccer when yeah. we came through, you were the best soccer player in the yeah. United States That's because yeah. there was no MLS, right. yeah. you know. And so when that came on, that was a huge yeah. achievement. But, you know, let's see us use it more in terms of, of cultivating it. And yeah. listen, all these clubs do a great job supporting you soccer. You, you go to yeah. Columbus, you go to Atlanta, you go, I mean, you go to any major city, Miami. The MLS team is present. They're, you know, they are doing a good job in terms of trying to, you know, get those kids excited about yeah. soccer and all that. But, I, you know, there, I feel like there's a little more, hopefully, that they can pull Well, they off. just announced, too, here in uh, Georgia and Fayette County, they're bringing U.S. soccer headquarters. Yep. That, that's going to be pretty neat. Huge. We'll have 20, to get, 20 fields. Yeah, we'll have to get down there and, and sure. check out some of the, the practices. I oh, think that would be a fun little getaway awesome. one of these weekends. Fun yeah, it's fine. a state-of-the-art complex. Yeah. I mean, they're dumping a bunch of money. So, thank God. It's, it's a good thing it's in Atlanta, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but I, back to Messi, I do hope we get to see him at the Benz on, on turf. and. So 
oh. and and find out, right? Like, I mean, I think it's a bad look for MLS. Messi as an investor, he's only got one or two years, right? Really, of competitive soccer. Like, who gives a shit if you get injured? To some degree, if you come to a Mercedes Benz or 73,000 people willing to pack it, and you try choose Crazy. to sit on the sideline, yeah, like. Because you may get hurt. <laughs> you, may, you may get hurt, and because the the stats or whatever, I just that doesn't make any sense to yeah. me. So that's I have to look at it from like a logical standpoint. There that he is the face of MLS right now, sure. and to be at the face of like one of the biggest audiences and stages in MLS, Mercedes Benz, who's willing to pack that place out. And they will. He's got to play, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, know, I, I just I I know that I don't have anything to back that with yet because <laughs> we haven't seen it, but he's got to play. Yep. Me, being, me being wrong is nothing new. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. Um, well, I know we've, we don't want to make you, you yeah. linger too yeah. long. You can hang and, and talk as much soccer as you want uh, or ask us questions. Or uh, Well, no, I appreciate the time. appreciate yeah. you all coming out. You know, I, I do have a little bit of seller stuff to get done today, yeah. so I appreciate yeah. you all coming out. It's great seeing everybody and meeting you guys. Yeah. Uh, talking Likewise. Atlanta United Soccer. Yeah, thanks so much for joining the podcast, and thanks so much for hosting us here at the Vineyard. Yes, Anytime. thank you. Hopefully we can track you down after this and maybe get a little more of a tour, but uh, sure. won't, won't hold you to anything. For sure. <laughs> Sounds good, guys. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Thank you.